Welcome again to the podcast from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. Uh, I'm Dr. Chuck McGaffey, and I welcome you to our continuing efforts to provide religious ministry over a broad number of platforms. And so today, I'll be speaking out of the uh, book of Psalms, the 34th chapter, But then I want to go to the first chapter of the book of Ruth and share with you from there. So hold on. It's going to be a good one. We've got a lot to share today, and I hope you will be ready to worship. I want to remind everyone that our website is www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com, and you can always go there. You can make contributions. You can find out what we're doing. Plug into your church, and it is your church. We welcome everyone and consider everyone our church family. If you just want to be part in a little way, that's okay. Sometimes families work that way. And if you want to be more fully involved, become a member, we welcome you for that too. Now let me start with the uh, first reading for today. It comes from Psalm 34. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, then skip down to 19 through 22. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look to him and be radiant so your faces shall never be ashamed. This poor soul cried and was heard by the Lord and was saved from every trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord rescues them from them all. And he keeps all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. It is the final verses of this reading that move me the most. I am impressed by those final lines. It was the hope expressed by David, hope in the redemptive love of God, a confidence in God's ultimate justice, and David's belief in the power of love to overcome every pain. Listen once again to the psalmist's concluding words. Calamity will surely destroy the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. In a second psalm, Psalm 126, from today's lectionary reading, there is this comfort. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. Those who plant in tears will reap with joy. Now, there is a biblical promise we all can embrace today. The nature of our relationship with God is defined by redemptive love. Inasmuch as that is true, we will consistently find the same answer to every sorrow, every grief. We may feel the pain of unbearable loss and the grief that will not go away, but there is something else for God's children. That something makes all the difference in the world. In brief, that something is this. If we try, love will win. 
God's restorative love is a theme repeated in the great redemptive narrative of the scripture. David, who wrote this message, had learned it from his ancestors. Their stories molded him. Likewise, they mold us as a congregation of faith in the same living God. One story of the power of love was preserved in the pow in the story of Ruth. This is the story of how two hurt people were able to overcome deep grief through the power of willful love. The words of Ruth speak to our hearts. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. A confession of unquestioned beauty and warmth recorded in the first chapter of Ruth should not be limited to recitations heard only at weddings. It was, in fact, not said about a wedding, but about a family, both now, about both how it is constituted and why. This, then, is a story well suited for the fellowship of believers called the church. Exploring its contents will ensure our understanding of who we are and who we might yet be as a church family. This is the context of this loving promise. Listen again to the way Ruth responded as she joined her mother-in-law, and then they became immigrants headed toward a new life. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in, Judea, in Judah went on a sojourn into the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Shelion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Shelion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? 
No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or keep me from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and all, more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. As they faced eastward, the two women began their long journey. The dust that puffed from under their feet was the only marker of the momentous decision they had made together. In silence and resolve, they turned their backs on the place that had been their home and set out to find a new place to dwell. Sadness and grief were thick between them. But so were devotion and love. Their travels would be hard and dangerous, but they knew their only option was to follow the setting sun. What had brought them to such a moment? What deep pain was etched upon their souls? What can we learn from their story? Together they trudged onward. The road ahead of them was intersected by the end of another road. That route taken years before had brought a young Jewish woman named Naomi, away from her home in the land of her parents to the high plains of Moab. It was a significant change of scenery, not just in the surrounding nature, but more importantly, it was the change of atmosphere. Her home of origin, called Bethlehem Epaphra, which literally meant house of bread, was not living up to its name. In fact, Bethlehem and the surrounding area was experiencing a severe famine. There was no bread in the house of bread. The food shortage might have been caused by nature, perhaps by a drought cycle. But it also could be the result of war or maybe lawlessness run amuck in the land of Judah. After all, it was the time of the judges in Israel. Maybe it was all three, whatever the cause. The results were severe enough to force some to leave in order to survive. In the beginning of this story, we are given the context. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The judges ruled between the times that Joshua died and Saul became king. However, the judges tended to deal with specific threats and were not constant in their leadership. This tended, therefore, to be a period in which every man did that which was right in his own eyes, which means not doing what was right in God's eyes. Whatever the cause of the famine, Elimelech made the decision to uproot his family and move to the neighboring kingdom of Moab. Moab was located on the southeastern shore of the Dead Sea. Much of it is high plateau, so its high terrain may have helped it to escape the famine which struck Bethlehem. It was not the altitude, though, but the attitude that made Moab such an interesting destination. The religious culture of Moab was foreign, strange, and even a bit 
dangerous. In fact, it is probable that Moab was not the final destination. The family was just passing through when their journey was interrupted by an unforeseen disaster. Elimelech dies. Widowed now with her two sons, Naomi has no choice but to settle down in Moab. Moab was hardly the place for a Hebrew holiday. Genesis says that the Moabites were descended from a man named Moab. Moab was the child of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter. The circumstances of his birth was regarded as impure and flawed heritage. Furthermore, the law recorded in Deuteronomy went so far as to forbid a Moabite from even entering the assembly of Yahweh. Thus separated, the Moabites developed a different religion. They worshipped Chemosh and were known as people of Chemosh. Chemosh, also known as the Destroyer, seems to have had a taste for blood. Human sacrifice was part of the rites of Chemosh. So it was by an untimely death that a Jewish woman named Naomi found herself widowed with her two sons in this God-forsaken land. Ten years passed. Somehow, someway, the family survived. Much of the credit goes to her two sons. These enterprising lads found a way to eke out a living from Moab. One day, as they considered their situation, they all must have sighed and decided that they could make it in the Moabite country after all. The boys, now men, married local girls. Together, they formed an extended family unit, so typical of the Middle East. The word on families and marriage here is important. Two Often people speak in blissful ignorance, asserting that the Bible offers the ideal description of family and marriage. The truth is far more complicated and, I think, more beautiful. When we truly understand this, we will feel not only more compassion for others, we might just give ourselves a break as well. But most important of all is that we will come to realize that God loves and cares for us no matter how flawed and dysfunctional our marriages and families are. Love is what matters. Naomi did not have a marriage that most of us would envy. According to the customs and beliefs of her day, she was regarded as property. That did not mean that Elimelech did not love and care for his wife, but the basis of their relationship was ownership. Even to this very day, we hear echoes of this kind of arrangement. When the minister asks the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man, it reminds us that not that long ago, the wedding ceremony was a contract between two men, the groom and the father of the bride. Treating women as property will be challenged in many places in Scripture, but nowhere else is that more strikingly evident than in the way Jesus respected women. Later, the sentiments of Jesus were succinctly expressed by the Apostle Paul, who made the radical proclamation, there are neither Jews nor Greeks, slaves nor free people, males nor females. You are all the same in Christ Jesus. In the main... 
Humanity has had a hard time buying into that. In Naomi's day, being a woman meant, at least in part, that you were some man's personal property. As such, she was totally dependent upon the men in her life. First her father, then her husband, and when he died, and when he died, her sons. But then, the bottom really dropped out for poor Naomi. Her one and only social security net, her sons, died. They had married, but no children had yet been born. So, fate would have, so as fate would have it, there were left three women who found themselves in a terrible fix. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, had no way to provide for themselves. In these cruel circumstances, there was no societal aid. The options for survival were grim. Women might take to the streets as prostitutes, beg a relative, if one could be found, to care for them, or roam about making it the best way they could from the pitiful donations of strangers. It was a despicable and unjust system, just the kind of thing God sheds a tear over, and we should too. But God does not give up on us, even when our marriages and families are all messed up. Death, divorce, abandonment, and abuse do not drive away the love of God. And God did not give up on Naomi either. This story would have been unremarkable and surely forgotten if what happened next did not happen. But it did. And because of that, God speaks to us through the faithfulness of a single human being. Her name was Ruth. The widow Naomi was a realist. She had drawn a bad hand in life. Her best days were behind her, and she knew it. All that lay in front of her were obscurity, poverty, and death. Her dreams, the progeny all people hoped for, had burned to ashes with the death of her husband and two sons. Try and put yourself in her position. What would you do? Naomi reasoned as she was going to have this sorry fate, she would return to her homeland. Whatever had been the motivation for the original journey was no longer a factor, so she must have said, well, as long as I must die destitute, I may as well see my home before I go. Psychologists tell us there is a state of the human heart, a place where mourning and grief have run their course and all that remains is sadness. I think this describes Naomi. She is done with denial, bargaining, false hope, and anger. All that fills her soul is the realization that she is sad, deprived of all of her dreams and comforts. Yet she keeps on breathing. She carries on, not because she has plans, but because she plainly doesn't know what else to do. Then, in a great act of kindness, she turns to her daughters-in-law, to the women she considers her own daughters, and she urges them to return to their families. Perhaps they will take them back in. Whatever their fate, as widows in Moab, it had to be better. Naomi released them. Naomi, the destitute widow, could offer them nothing, or so she thought. Orpah loved her mother-in-law, but she saw the wisdom in her counsel. What other choice did she have? Through the years, commentators have been somewhat harsh on Orpah, even making her the villainess of the story, but I do not think that is right. She was reasonable. 
She too had her heart broken by the death of a husband. Her fate was just as unsure as the other two women. Perhaps then our response to this one should be compassion and hope. We can do that if we will understand that the bad guy in the story is not a young Moabite woman, but an uncaring and uncreative society that treated people, people created in God's image as garbage to be thrown out. Ruth was, of course, a victim as well. The odds were not good, but they were considerably better for her if she followed Orpah's decision. But then, they were considerably better for her if she... But then comes the wrinkle in the story, the odd thing that will prove to be a moment of incredible destiny. Ruth chose to stay with her mother-in-law. She will go with her to her homeland in Judah. What is more moving is she makes a decision to completely abandon Chemosh and adopt the God of Naomi. In this decision, she rejects all convention and advice. See, from one angle, her decision was impractical. Her choice to go with Naomi and follow her God might even be her undoing, but she makes it anyway. As the two women turn toward the western horizon, not a word is expressed. Maybe it was one of those moments that comes along every now and again, where we are at a loss to express the feelings of the heart. This was a God moment. It is love. We speak frequently of love, using the Greek word agape. Yet here the word, yet, yet here the story written in Hebrew uses a different word. The word is hesed has a rich variety of meanings, kindness, loving kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, or simply love. Like the Greek word agape in the New Testament, he said is an action word. It involves more than kind feelings. It must be expressed through kind or loving actions. Onward toward Bethlehem, the two women go. Instead of two lonely feet, four feet left their prints on the desert road. Their prospects unsure, but their commitment firm. No matter what the future held, they were now and always family. What lessons might we take from this marvelous example of love? What might the story of Ruth teach us as the church? I think the words spoken by George MacDonald are helpful here. He said, a person must not choose his neighbor. He must take the neighbor God sends him. The neighbor is just the person who is next to you at any moment, the person with whom any business has brought you into contact. It was an odd set of circumstances, famine being stranded in a foreign land and untimely death that brought Naomi and Ruth together. So too we are brought together with one another through the circumstances of our lives. We do not actually choose our neighbors, but we can choose to love them. One way to think of church is we are neighbors who have chosen to be friends and then become family. Whenever that happens, we are reminded of the experience of Naomi and Ruth and how love won the day. Disasters affect us all, that is a fact. But we do not need to travel the hard road alone. You have a family who loves you, a family who believes in you, that God really is with us and that he really does love us. Interestingly enough, the story of Ruth and Naomi confirms that our God loves to put different people into relationship with each other. The truth was that the Moabites and the Jews were enemies. Their thoughts, values, and religion were quite different. But the God of love brought them together. 
And he can and will bring us together too. That is the beauty of the church. And by the way, it is the hope for a polarized population. Alas, the story is not over. Never put a period where God puts a comma. There is something more. Ruth will meet a man named Boaz. He will have compassion on her, perhaps because of his own story. You see, his mother was Rahab, who was a great hero, but she was also a foreigner who had once been a prostitute herself. They will fall in love and marry through Boaz and Ruth. The lineage of David will ultimately be Jesus. This reminds us of God's original covenant with Abram, where God said, of all the families of the earth, you will be blessed. The reality went beyond that promise. Not only were the Moabites and other foreigners blessed by the birth of Jesus, this Moabite woman, Ruth, became one of those through whom the promise came. Where Abraham became the father of a nation, Ruth will be the mother of its line of kings. Today we are so troubled. And it really hurts my heart as a minister of the gospel that so many of God's children are deriving their religious values from their prejudices when they should be viewing their prejudices through the light of their religion. Instead of saying, I'll believe it when I see it, too many are saying, I'll see it when I believe it. Love, as described by the Bible, tells us a better way. The story of Ruth was a formative story for the Jewish people and those who would emerge from Jewish roots to follow Jesus of Nazareth. I have been reading an author named Richard Beck. In his book, he comments on this story of winning love. He writes, The setting of Ruth during the time of the judges is profound and convicting. During the time of the judges, the world was falling apart. There was moral and political corruption, evil and chaos reigned. And isn't that exactly how a lot of us feel about our world right now? The center isn't holding. All is falling into darkness. Political oppression is everywhere. Moral decay is all around us. Yet, in the middle of all of that chaos and confusion, the Bible zooms in to tell a tender, intimate story of kindness. During the time of the judges, Ruth made a promise to Naomi, a small thing when the world is falling apart. And during the time when the judges ruled, Boaz saw Ruth on the edge of his field, a small thing to cover her with kindness when the world is spinning out of control. And so it seems to us today, can our small acts of kindness and genuine love really make a difference given all the chaos and corruption going on around us? The moral of the story it's this. During the time when the judges ruled, God used love to save the world. There are some things we might wonder together as people of the book who endeavor to follow our Savior with honesty and integrity. Are we honestly engaged with our historic faith as taught in the scriptures? Put another way, does our walk match our talk? So look around. Do you see your traveling companions? We're all on this journey together. We're called by our faith heritage to value our neighbors as we value ourselves. How does that speak to us? In this place called the church, we encounter our neighbors. 
They may be different than we are. They may not be of our same background. They may even think differently. They may even vote in other ways. Will we dare embody the words of Christ? When asked who was to be considered a neighbor, he answered, the marginalized, the one of another race and culture, the one who is sexually different, the poor, the prisoner, even the one of another religion. See them as your fellow travelers. In you they will find acceptance and love. In them you will find family. If we try, love will win. Let us pray. Lord, bring our family together. Even when we sense our differences and disagreements, remind us that our love for each other is the bond that you have forged through your love for us. In your grace, we are brothers and sisters. Amen.